Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code SHAP30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. She was born into a tennis family in what is now Bosnia, in the former Yugoslavia, and moved to Darmstadt, Germany as an infant. She turned pro when she was 18 in 2006 and got to nine in the world in 2011. She has won seven WTA titles and reached the semis of the 2014 French Open. Armed with a quick wit and an effervescent personality, Andrea Petkovic is today's guest. So hang on, where are you? I'm at home in Darmstadt, in uh, close to Frankfurt in Germany right now. So you fly to Frankfurt to go to Darmstadt? Yes, it's it's only 30 minutes from Frankfurt. It's really close, actually. And what's your next move? Are you there for a minute? Yeah, so I just started, I was a little injured, so I just started practicing again. And hopefully if next week I can go at full engines again, which this week I'm not doing quite yet, then I will go to Madrid and Rome then afterwards. You're going to Madrid and Rome. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, the young woman you hear, former world number eight? Nine. Nine. Former world yeah. number nine. She was born in Bosnia and has grown up in Germany. Chris Clary years ago mentioned that she had a roving intellect and was one of the more interesting players on tour. Andrea Petkovic, nice to see you. It's been a couple of weeks. Hi, Craig. It's been a couple of weeks, yes. <laughs> Listen, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. You just mentioned it. You've been hurt. Can you uh, just sort of download us on what that's been like? Yeah, it's been a classic uh, older-than-I-think-I-am uh, situation. I strained my muscle, my adductor in Indian Wells, and um, it was quite bad, so I couldn't play in Indian Wells, but it wasn't as bad that I thought, oh, I have to take a bunch of weeks off. I just took a break for three, four days and then started practicing again. And then coming to Miami, I heard exactly the same muscle again. And why I say it's a classic uh, older than you think you are, because this kind of injury when I was 20 would have probably been a two day, three day thing. And, and that's it. But, um, but now I'm 34. So it takes much longer. And I still have to my mental my mentality has to adjust to that my my body is not th is there yet, but my mentality not quite. And you said a doctor, it's essentially like the groin. That's that, that's yeah. a tough injury. Yeah, it's really tricky because it's a small muscle that goes really deep from the groin to the knee. And, um, and it's hard to strengthen it because there are so many bigger muscles around that if you try to strengthen exactly that muscle, mostly you just use other muscles. To, so to specifically find that one, I now have a, a bunch of exercises that I do. And then also going on clay now, it's, that's, those are the muscles that you need most for the sliding. So I decided to take some, uh, some weeks off and, and really recover it before going on clay because that's my, my best surface. It's the surface I feel most comfortable on, but I need to be able to slide on that surface to play well. Now, I, I had, a, a, not to brag, but I had a bit of a front row seat for your injury situation in Miami. You went right up against the cutoff to play or not play. You seem pensive. You seem distracted. Your mood was iffy. Mm -hmm. What's it like to 
to be you right now, trying to play these big events, trying to play well and, and, and having to do that dance of, do I pull out? Do I play? Do I try to fight through? Um, yeah, well, I'm going to go into my personal stance and then a little bit on the whole, uh, how the organization around the tournaments is, is built, why it makes the decision sometimes harder. So uh, personally, for me, I'm, as I said, I'm 34. So every injury, as small as it is, that costs me an event is really not to say traumatic, but it's somehow harder than it used to be because I don't know how many more Indian Wells's or Miami's I'm going to play. So every time I'm there and I can't play, I'm worried that I won't be able to come back because I don't know how my body will be next year or my mentality or my attitude, right? So that's why it's always, uh, it drives me to push harder through injuries in order to participate in events that I might not be able to come back to that's like the personal side why it's harder when you're older to get injuries aside from the thing that it just takes longer to recuperate and then the system is really um it's really strangely built uh as you know we're all self-employed tennis players we pay for our expenses ourselves we have to pay for our hotels and uh our coaches and physiotherapists and their hotels and our flights so going as a European, going to Indian Wells and Miami is, um, is, comes with huge costs for me. So I have to invest in, and as I'm older, I bring my physiotherapist with me and my coach. I'm very professional in that regard. So I have to pay two rooms. Um, they are $350, $380 a night. So if I can't play the event, I'm losing all of the prize money, right? You have, um, you have the right twice a year to take some of the prize money in, in an event that you choose, but you can't do it twice in a row. So if I take the prize money of Indian Wells, I can't do the same in, in Miami. So me hurting myself again in Miami comes not only with the question, should I take a break for my body, but also I'm 20K in the minus right now. I'm not earning any prize money. Do I go out there and just play a few games and retire. So at least I have the price money and my hotel room is paid. If I play, if I don't play, they don't pay the hotel room. Right. So, so I'm a businesswoman as well as I am a tennis player. We all are. So uh, apart from the physical stuff, I have to ask myself as an, basically as an accountant, how am I going to approach this whole situation right now? And thankfully I've had a great career. I've been on tour for 15 years. I've been able to, uh, you know, build a financial puffer that I don't need the money and I can make the right choice, not only for me, but also for my colleagues who are lucky losers or waiting to get into the tournament. But there are younger girls who don't have that puffer or who are just coming up. And I think there needs to be um, some sort of an insurance maybe that the WTA or ATP has that can jump in cases that somebody gets injured and help them a little bit with their expenses, you know. So there was more going on in your head uh, when we were at the beach than um, than meets the eye. That's really the, yes. yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, and and nobody likes losing twenty grand. It doesn't matter how well you are doing. Like that's kind of like racing through your head. Exactly. Yes, and I I like to. I know some people don't like to talk about about money. Neither do I. I'm very German in that regard. But I like to share these thoughts just to. Um, put people a little bit in the shoes of a tennis player that there is uh, as we are not 
um, employed by a club or an organization, like for example, team players most often are um, soccer players in Germany, for example, basketball they have all their expenses covered, right? And they earn their money and their salary if they get injured or not, right? And so for us, an injury comes with a little bit more than just the physical strain. You have to make decisions. You have to, then after Indian Wells, for example, I had to also make the call. Do I keep my uh, coach and my physio with me? And do I try to go for Miami? Or does it make more sense to call it a day and go back to Germany and, you know, not have to pay um, well, just have all these expenses of being abroad. You know, if I'm at home, I can stay at home and I can uh, have my coach and my physio with me. So it's just not only the straight up physical demands that you that come with an injury, but also the financial struggles that you have to just in order to to make the right decisions, you have to take all these thoughts in and just um, be wise about it. And I think I made the right decision, but I'll never know, right? <laughs> and 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 the other part of it is is you want your you want your team to eat, right? You want your team to be. You you realize that when you're sending them home, that buries them as well, and it's got to be a stressful thing all the way around. Exactly. So I obviously when I keep my team with me or when I ask them to come with me to Indian Wells, Miami, they expect a full month, which normally the trip is because it's two two weeks events. And I was also planning on going to Charleston. So they plan on five to six weeks of work. Right. So I'm really lucky with my team. They have uh, their own things set up at back at home in Serbia. They have uh, lessons they can give and my physio has a practice that he can go back to but still it's uh if you tell somebody I'm going to be gone for six weeks you can't just be back 10 days later and be like here I am <laughs> so yeah there, there's just a lot of responsibility that comes with uh, with being uh, a self-employed tennis player and I, I I used to feel really stressed out about it and I still do but I think for life it's really important to take these lessons in because uh, no matter what happens to me as a tennis player, I will always be able to lead a lead a business in a way, you know, just the ba most basic accountant things. If these are my expenses, how yeah. much do I have to earn to make a living? You know, just like basic things that you have to um, that. Yeah, that you just have to consider all the time. Last question. Are you healthy? Are you ready to go? I'm healthy again. Yeah, I just started practicing two days ago and I'm going slow. I'm not playing more than an hour a day but i'm going to increase hopefully next week let's move into the second set this is the on the court report this is generally speaking where we talk about current events and the business of tennis i want to start with the war in ukraine i guess my question to you is very pointed uh, marta kostiuk had some very emotional and unpleasant comments a month and a half ago with regards to the situation, with regards to the Russian players not having reached out to her in confidence, with regards to her hearing them really, the only thing she heard was they were pensive or, or uncertain how they were going to transfer money. Can you speak to any of this and what this war has meant for the tours? Um, so here is just... Generally, I I have a few thoughts on why I think journalists shouldn't ask tennis players about, specifically Ukrainian and Russian tennis players, about the situation right now. I understand that it makes for a good headline. I understand that 
uh, journalists are maybe just really gen generally and genuinely interested in how the players are feeling. But here is uh, why I think that is not uh, that it shouldn't be done. From the Ukrainian perspective, they are not arguing rationally. They're in a very emotional state. Their country is being bombed. Their family and friends are in danger. They wake up every morning with existential fear and dread. And they have other things to think about and how eloquently or not eloquently they are going to express uh, what they want to say. So they are just very emotional. And um, I've, done, I've been in press conferences where I've been emotional and I said things that I wish I could take back. So I, that's my perspective on the Ukrainian players. I don't think they can look at the situation uh, objectively and rationally and say something that will not offend anybody because they are not and they shouldn't be. Who would be in a situation like that? Who would, wouldn't be emotional? And then on the Russian side, if you ask Russian tennis players, you expect them to take a strong stance However, by doing that, they are endangering family and friends as well back home with, who can be um, imprisoned or put in danger. And um, my parents grew up in a socialist country in Yugoslavia back then. And I think when you grew up in a country that is not a democracy, um, you understand the workings and the systems a little bit better than uh, when you've lived your whole life in a democracy. And so that would be my wish. I know that's an idealized world in uh, which is not our world with social media and quotes and press conferences and interviews. But uh, I think out of empathy for both parties, this is what, what journalists should refrain to is just try and keep the war out of it. And, um, and hope for, or just try and folk, or just ask maybe, how are you feeling, you know, but not try and get a quote out of them that will uh, cause friction and tension. Uh, some German players have been in the news. Do you have a relationship with Boris Becker? Can you speak to some of his troubles? Um, it's, it's remarkably sad to me to see such a great champion, you know, in trouble. I know that you've worked with him in television. Can you add a, a German insider uh, view of what's going on? Well, yeah, it is very, but I think it touches actually a little bit on the things that I just mentioned in our first set, <laughs> mm. because, um, yeah. you know, I started playing when I was really like a full year on tour of full seasons when I was 19, 20. And um, I had to do it by myself. I wasn't the, um, I wasn't the super, natural talent that Boris was or other tennis players are. I had my great career. Sorry, for our listeners, just this week, Boris Becker was found, you know, in contempt of court, was found guilty of essentially hiding assets. He is in bad debt. He's essentially bankrupt. And part of what he was trying to hide were his Wimbledon trophies. And um, for me, that's, it's tragic. Sorry, continue. Yeah, so... Um, I think uh, it touches a little bit on what I said earlier that, um, you know, when I started playing tennis, I was 19, 20. Those were my full seasons. I had finished school. So I wasn't the supernatural talent that Boris was winning Wimbledon when he was 17. Uh, when you're that successful at such a young age, there will be people around you who take care of everything. So you don't have to think about anything else but tennis. And, um, which is great for the tennis player, Boris Becker, but what, which is not great for the human being or the person, Boris Becker. 
or I'm not even talking specifically about Boris, but about anybody, because the things that I had to learn very early on, because uh, I had no no support and uh, no financial support, no sponsors, I had to finance everything myself. So I knew I would sometimes go to tournaments and I knew if I didn't win the tournament, I wouldn't have the money to pay the uh, plane ticket back, right? So, uh, but this has made me very... Um, I don't know if smart with money, but I can, I can get along, you know, I, I know how to deal with my, my finances and somebody who was so successful at such a young age and people just came in, rushed in managers, um, financial managers, wealth managers, and uh, just maybe even not advise them, but just took over. I think that's one part of it to just touch on the first set that we, that we played before. And then on the other hand, it's just, uh, Boris has been nothing but very generous with his knowledge towards us players. And so it just makes me really sad. And I hope that it will resolve itself and that he will um, find a solution for himself and his family. Because whenever I asked him for uh, tips or um, how he did something, he didn't have to tell me, but he always did. He always took time. He always sat down with me and he always really... Um, was, as I said, nothing but generous with me. So I really hope that this comes to, to a good end for him. And um, yeah. And he's been active and significant in tennis now for, you know, 40 years. It would be nice to see the tennis community somehow help find him out of this. I don't know if that's something that can happen. And it's like wishful thinking, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. I, uh, I'm, Obviously, none of us are really in the situation to know what is exactly going on. But, um, but yeah, I just hope that he can find a resolution. Uh, Alexander Zverev hammered the chair with his racket in Mexico. It felt remarkably disrespectful to me. I don't. I'm curious your opinion of what happened and you know where 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 tennis lands on that it seemed like he got off with very uh insignificant punishment and there's been like some repercussions i think in the media but nowhere else mm. um well listen i'm a very emotional player not anymore i have to say i've i've grown out of it or just become um, more serene and uh an adult with age but i was a very temperamental tennis player I had fits of rage I threw records I broke records so I somewhat um, understand where this rage can come from it's mostly just uh, anger at oneself at uh, your own self than anybody else but this specific incident when it's attacking and that's why we have these rules in place like if you hit somebody with the ball no matter if you wanted to or not you're disqualified and these are um the thing is what we have to understand as players, these rules are in place to protect the people and the game of tennis, which is so great because you can sit so close to us, right? I went to many soccer games. I went to uh, a bunch of basketball games. And in basketball, you have it somewhat depending on where you sit. But in soccer, you're so far away from the pitch. You can like barely make out if there are robots or human beings running on the pitch. So this is so great about tennis. You can sit right at the court, uh, but in order to keep this alive, um, we you, we have to have and put certain rules into place, and that go, goes from officials to fans to anybody who is around the court. And I love the traditional linesman, 
ball boys, you know, it's just like, I think it looks really beautiful on the court to have all these people that are necessary and all like this form and shape of a tennis game that is just necessary to have a match happen is just so beautiful to me to look at. And these people need to be protected. So I think you should always make a difference as an organization, may it be the ATP or WTA or ITF. Was it just a fit of rage where somebody is like, break breaks 25 records for himself like Baghdatis did one time he kept the records in the bag and just like broke it in front of him on his bench then I would say like find him an amount of money but maybe you don't even have to find him it's just like rage against himself however when other people are in danger you have to make precedence and um and I think this is where the, the organizations of tennis have to have stricter rules and then also be more lenient on things that I think are not as bad. Like break it. Like for example, when I see Nick Kyrgios and he has all his antics, I don't mind them. The only thing I mind is when he starts tanking and going at the umpires, because I'm like, why does he need that? When he's like doing his thing and like serving underarm and breaking records, I don't mind any of this. It's like part of the spectacle. But the minute he starts tanking, it affects the game. The minute he starts yelling at umpires, it affects the game. And I think there should be a distinction um, that should be based on a specific incident. And when it's harmful for others that are on court, then the organizations should have stricter rules. How are you feeling about the health of the WTA at this moment. Asia is no longer the Peng Shui situation shut down the Asian portion of the tour. There's been a new sponsor, title sponsor, come on, Hologic, which I think is a huge coup. How are you feeling about the health of the tour? Well, I think the Hologic sponsorship really helped um, because we were at a crossroads a little bit. I think it was very important that we as the WTA took a stance and as maybe the only um, sports organization in the world who took a stance that had repercussions for us financially as a tour, um, but found it more important to stand behind um, female rights, equality, and, uh, and protecting one of our players, one of our peers. I think that was really important. However, financially, it did have repercussions. And so Hologic coming in was a big a relief for everyone and it just helps have a little bit security I think the fit is really nice it's female health and uh, I think that's what the WTA stands for so I think the fit is really nice and then I think we're just in really lucky lucky hands with our young stars that we have right now I think there's just uh, once every decade does a generation like this come along with somebody like uh, Iga Swiatek, uh, Naomi Osaka, Paula Badosa, they are all so young, have so much more tennis in them um, and are just so fascinating and exciting to watch. So just from the stars perspective, I think this is uh, this is really a golden age and golden era for for women's tennis. We lost one star with Ashley Barty. I hope she's uh, I wish her all the best in her retirement life, but uh, but I do still think that we're in great hands when it comes to young stars on the WTA tour. Did you have any feel for the Barty retirement? Did you have any inside information when that news came down? Was it odd to you that she claimed she was fatigued when she had like <laughs> won the Australian Open in straight sets all the way through? I, 
I was shocked. I really have to say, I was completely shocked. Not even like surprised. I was really shocked. I had no idea, um, no inkling, nothing. I just thought she saw, you know, I thought she was going to go on a really dominating run like Roger did in the early 2000s or uh, Novak did uh, a few years ago because uh, she was just that much better. It's not a lot, but it's just that much with her type of game that she can even with not playing great, win most of the matches on the tour. So I thought she can feel that and she's just going to come to the tournaments that she wants to play, but still play, you know, 10 years or so, but maybe with just like eight, nine, 10 events a year that she picks. But uh, this was really shocking. I I had no idea. I think a lot of uh, players in the locker room were like, oh no, we like Ashley, but good for us because you you don't want to see Ashley in your part of the draw. That's really scary. <laughs> like sometimes, you know, sometimes when these big sort of events happen or these, these announcements, you don't think back and be like, oh shoot, you know, I I remember seeing her miserable in the airport or not, not nothing like that. She was always just no. smooth. No. I had this one situation that was, um, I mean, to me at that time, it was funny, but thinking back, it wasn't that funny. I had one situation, Marianne Bartoli in Cincinnati came up to me after, and we both of us had played a night match and it was really empty in the locker room. And she came up to me and she was like completely sweaty, just straight from the court. And she was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm like, what do you mean then? She's like, oh, I'm retiring. I can't do this anymore. And I was like, oh, you're just talking. You know, sometimes we say this when you lose a really hurtful match and she lost 7-5 in the third against Halep. She had match points. And I was like, oh, it's just the, you know, it's just the frustration of the match talking. Like, give it a night and you'll be okay. And she's like, no, I just don't have the fire in me anymore. And I remember saying to her, do what you want, Marion, but please don't retire in Mason, Ohio. You can't do that to yourself. And I went back to the, I took a shower, head massage, went back to the hotel and all the French players were standing around in the, in the lobby. And I went up to them. I was like, did something happen? What is happening? And they're like, Marion is just retiring. And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe she just went ahead straight from the match and just like straight up retired coming off a frustrating match. But, I mean, she never came back. So, I guess it was the right decision after all. And I had no inkling whatsoever before that either. Andrea Pekovic, the first person to learn of the Bartoli retirement. That's sort of an interesting thing, right? That's kind of funny. (laughs) Generally speaking, the leadership of Steve Simon, Mickey Lawler, WTA, are you feeling good? Are you feeling bullish about what's 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 next well you know there are things that i would like to change in tennis but those are things that have not so much to do with the wta but more just with tennis in general so i think yes that the wta is doing the best job that they can in this format does it trouble you to see there's no women's event the same week as monte carlo year after year i always find that so glaring for example. Oh, that's what, yeah, that's one thing that we have to improve. And I don't know how, but um, we have to have more events. So either the whole tennis in a sense that it's one holistic company or organization where all the tennis is combined in one organization, or 
um, we as the WTA have to have more tournaments. It is not possible, and it's really a shame for the WTA that the 34th ranked player and Jill Teichmann had to play qualies in Dubai, which is a 500 event. And not only did she have to play qualies, but she had to win three rounds to qualify for the main draw as the 34th best player in the world. And that just cannot happen. Those are things that are just shouldn't be allowed to happen in a sports like this. Imagine, Craig, you were the 34th best podcaster <laughs> in the world. Yeah. You would earn millions, if not billions of money. Spotify would pay you $12 million a day just to do your podcast. And it can't be that she's getting paid $600 if she loses first round in qualies. And now the women's tennis is so close together that this can happen. It's not guaranteed that she's going to qualify. I think she did in the end and good for her, but this should not be allowed to happen that the 30th best player in the world has to play qualies. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. So do I have it right? You were born in Bosnia and as an infant, generally speaking, moved to Germany. Yes, correct. So um, I was born in Bosnia, which was back then part of Yugoslavia. Uh, It was socialist and my parents came to Germany two or three years before the war started because it was already getting a little bit, um, yeah, there, were, there was already tension in Yugoslavia. Do you dream in German, English, or Serb? Uh, in German. I think German is the uh, language that I feel most comfortable in. Although now that I spend so much, I spend so much time in New York, um, English is getting close, uh, is becoming a close second. And I have to ask, you wrote an article that I think about sometimes uh, for Racket Magazine. It, it was fictional, but it, it was clearly about you. And you had a roommate at a tournament as a kid, and you you referred to Arkan, who is this you know Serbian warlord, and. And I always remembered that because I thought you were, I thought it it had it in my mind that you were too young to have seen or knew about war. Would that be fair to say that you didn't see war, but you must know a lot about war because of your family and where you're from? So my family um, fled the country before the war started, but um, all my cousins, I have eight cousins, all women, all female. <laughs> really? And yes, we are eight cousins, in, and, um, and they all came to Germany while the war had already started or um, was about to start. So they really, like, strictly fled the war. And um, yeah, and I mean, uh, my parents tried to keep most of these things away from us kids we were too small when uh when it was going down but uh but i remember in 2000 when the nato bombarded the u.s and the nato bombarded serbia um i was 12 or 13 and i still wasn't apt enough to understand what was happening but i could feel that um in my family there was a lot of distraught and um yeah and stress and um emotional upheaval where does your tennis begin? 
Well, it probably begins before I was even born because my whole family is um, tennis related in some sense. My dad is a tennis coach. Both of my uncles are tennis coaches. We all play tennis. Um, thanks to tennis, my family was uh, able to leave uh, back then Yugoslavia and come to Germany because my dad um, was playing team matches in Germany and was uh, coaching and then got a job as a um yeah, as a tennis coach in a tennis club, so did my uncles. And so I think thanks to, to tennis, we were able to come to Germany and build a life for ourselves here. Your dad was playing the Bundesliga. Yeah. <laughs> so he, does he play very good tennis? Is he, still, can he, is he still a very good player? Well, now he's a little bit old, but up until three, four years ago, he would still hit all the time. And, um, and he, he played college tennis, actually. He was a Gamecock, uh, so he played for really? the University of South Carolina, yeah. And uh, so he came with me to Charleston, which is not so far away, a few times, and he had a great time. So, uh, so yeah, he was good. But, you know, the problem uh, that was he – well, the problem – he was – he's um, born in 1960, so he was the last generation to still play old school tennis. So he learned tennis on a wooden record. So he has this very stiff forehand, you know, like a central grip, no spin. And then the one generation under him, they started playing already with spin. Like he played, um, he played, I think, Nastasa, then Perpich. I don't know if you remember Perpich. He was also... Uh, coaching on the on the Goran, WTA Goran, Goran, Goran. Perpich. Yes, exactly. And so he was already playing with topspin. So my dad was really caught in this like uh, he was one generation too old to keep up with the younger because he told me when they came up and were playing spins, there was no chance that it, he was also like coming to the net, playing slides, coming to the net, and that was impossible. Once they started playing topspin, they would pass them all the time, and he had no chance. He must hit a super clean ball, I have a feeling. You watch these guys <laughs> that play that continental style. It's like a real yeah. clean, clean hitter. He loves he loves when we play on carpet, you know, and I, I don't <laughs> want to play on carpet with him. <laughs> At what age were you able to beat him? Oh, we never really played for okay. points. We would always okay. just practice. My dad had a – and I'm I'm really glad now looking back that he had a very strictly technical approach to tennis. So he learned – uh, or he taught me very clean technique from the beginning and we would hit a lot of balls and over and over and the same things, you know, just like cross courts down the lines, hitting, he would make me run and he would stand in one corner and then him on the net. So very classical, typical, I want to say Eastern style tennis because a lot of um, players that I see from Russia, Czech Republic and then the Balkans, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Slovenia and so on and so forth they mostly do this type of practice where they just hit a lot of balls um, a lot of uh, repetitions and have clean technique so that was the same approach basically for us and when you're playing well you sort of control the middle of the court you take the ball remarkably early and you you can crack kind of sort of all over the court right you hit the ball crawl down the line cross court inside out all very proficiently would it be fair to say that your dad kind of created that style yeah definitely and i would i would also say it's really interesting for me to see with the development of the game when i was um when i started coming on tour i was 18 19 20 
I was one of the players on tour that hit the ball harder than most other players and uh, just was able to take the ball really early, return from inside the court and do all these things. And all of that has become much harder now with the new generation coming up who everyone is playing really fast. And then there are players like uh, Sviantek and Osaka who hit even faster and even harder than we used to hit. And back then you would have that against the Williams sisters but and maybe Kleisters. But other than that, I played Kleisters twice, I think. But other than that, I was really able to be on the line most of the matches, you know, and it was in my hands if I would, you know, win or lose. And now it's really uh, has become an adjustment for me. I had to uh, put the new things into my game, a little more change of rhythm because I'm not always the one controlling the court anymore as I used to. You won a tournament a year ago in, in, at the back end of the year in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And, and in Romania. I, Sorry, in Romania, and you did exactly what you just described. You, I mean, you had like a real great tournament. I mean, every match it seemed to me like you were, like you really didn't get off that baseline. <laughs> that's when yeah. you're playing your best tennis, huh? Yeah, de- definitely, exactly, and that's where for you know for this type of tennis also you need to be quick and explosive and um, and really see the ball well, which I usually do but now that I've gotten older there are days when I feel a little slower and then I have to adjust I can't stand as close on the as close to the line anymore so uh, I think for players like me you can feel like I always think of Burdich who retired Mm -hmm. fairly early and people felt like oh that was early but the way he played I think he could feel the level um, from not disappearing from him, but it could feel the level for him because he played on the line, very flat, very clean and good timing. And um, and I think it had gotten harder for him just to see the ball constantly on, on this exceptional level that he played on. And um, and so this is also similar to me, but I still have weeks where I can string it together and I still have matches where I can pull it together. I just need to be fresh and and, and and really recovered and and healthy to to be able to do that in the beginning in Australia for example I had uh, three really good matches in in the preparatory tournament for uh, for the Australian Open and then I can feel I can still you know trouble anybody on on tour because I do take the ball so early but it has a lot of things have to come together now for this to happen did you play like Le Petit A and the Orange Bowls and the Easter Bowls? And did you travel all over the world? Were you uh, identified by the German Federation when you were nine years old? Did you, did you live the life of a superstar German junior? I mean, I lived the life of a superstar in my own head. Definitely yeah. not on the outside. Yeah, um, yeah no, I was... Um, I wasn't so certain if I want or differently put my parents didn't really want me to become a professional tennis player I think I wanted to but they were pushing me like gently to do the classic college um, school college out because I was a really good student and I had really good grades so there were a lot of doors that were open to me but I pretty quickly realized that this is what I wanna um, this is what I wanna try and do, and so I, I had to push back a little bit. But, but I did only compromise with my parents that I was able to go on tour when I was eighteen, nineteen. So when I had finished high school in Germany, which is thirteen years, and uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me they wouldn't let me go earlier. My my colleagues and friends, Gerges and Angie Kerber, 
they uh, became pro when they were 15, 16, I think. And my parents made me go to school until the bitter end, which I will never forgive them for. <laughs> but but uh, the way I've read it um, when I was getting ready for the interview was that you 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 were really good at school but you weren't sure that you could be a pro player is that untrue that you always that you were fighting with them to be a pro player yeah so i think my dad didn't really want me to go through the same things that he went through which was kind of he was very good in his country he played davis cup but then when he went out there he quickly realized that that's not good enough anymore because the younger players and generations were just on another level and playing differently. And I think that was really hard for him. And I think he didn't want me to go through the same experience, but um, I had some success when I was like 14, 15 in my school holidays. I won a bunch of back then ITF tournaments until 14 or 15. I don't remember. So I felt like I can, I can, you know, I can play internationally, but it was really hard with school in Germany to combine it. So I just played tournaments during my school holidays. And then when I finished school, I took three months um, just for training, strict training. So I, um, I did, I had to build up my physical, um, the physical part of my game and I just practiced a lot and then I went on tour and a year later I was in the top hundred. So, um, so it went from then on, it went pretty quickly. I have to say, I just like soar and soar in the, in the rankings, but, um, but until then it was kind of slow. Was there a day, was there a match, was there a week that you said, Oh, you know what? I could be really good. Like I could be a pro, I could be a, I could get into the hundred. Because like I, yeah. I, ima- I imagine you sort of start at seven hundred or a thousand or no ranking, yeah. and you start winning matches. I, I, I was there. A, was, I'll just stop there. Was I'll take that question. Um. Well, you know what? For me, I know there are players that just have this like imminent confidence. They just believe they are. They belong, right? I never had that. But once I overcame a step or a hurdle. It was done for me. I knew I could do it. So I will tell, I will give you an example. When I started playing ITF tournaments, 10,000 Ks and 15 and 25,000, I started playing 10,000 Ks and I lost like first round, second round, qualies. And then I won one tournament in Turkey from qualies. I played 10 matches in five days. I had to play five rounds of qualifying. And when I won that tournament, I won five in a row. You know, like I just needed to overcome that one obstacle and then I was okay. And the same was with, um, then I went uh, to 25Ks and then I lost one round, two rounds, second round, first round. I won a 25K and I won three in a row right away. And so for me, the moment when I knew I could belong to the best was when I beat Kuznetsova in Tokyo because I was maybe ranked 60 at the time and she was uh, the number four player, I think, or five player in the world. And I beat her, and I and when I beat her, that was it for me. I was like, ah, I can do it. And I think a year later or so, I was in the top ten. So for me, I like once I gained the confidence, it was there, and it was there to stay. Nobody could like rattle it anymore. But I needed to work for it. It was like an imminent confidence that I just brought naturally with me. What's the difference between nine and three? What's the difference between eight and one? What's is the, is there a difference? It really this is now maybe going to be a strange thing to say, but some people who follow tennis very 
might understand. It really depends on the era. So when I was number nine in the world, I was only 200 points behind the number second, the two players. So if I had played, uh, I got injured that year, so I couldn't play the season uh, when I was number nine. But if I had played Australia and won two or three rounds, depending on how the other girls had played, I could have been second player in the world after the Australian Open. So in this era, when I played, Caroline Wozniacki was dominating the number one ranking. She had like 10,000 points. There was a huge gap. And then between two and 10, we were all really close together. So every tournament, you would go from nine to five, from five to 10, from 10 to two, from two to... So that was like really close. And then again, from 10 to, to 11 was a huge gap. So I got injured. I didn't play for eight months. And I think I was still ranked 12th in the world. So it shows you how what kind of a gap it was now it's a little bit different now there's a i think there are three four five players that are better than the others and then there's the adjacent ones that are better than than the rest of the field so it's depending on the era it depends um it's how how yeah, how far and, and or how close it is together. I, I remember talking with Chuck Adams, who got to 33 in the world. And he said that, you know, the difference between top 30 to top 20 to top 10 was to some degree miles per hour on their on, for, on their first serve. That oh, really? once he lost, once he lost velocity and he couldn't serve 125 he wasn't able to compete that he that 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 his ranking would drop um is are there any discernible sort of things that you need to be to be top 50 top 30 top 10 mm-hmm. you know like we see now um generally speaking every every woman in the top 10 serves 115 or what yeah, that's a uh, that's a big change that has come um, along in the in, in the women's game. I played last year. I played first round at the Australian Open. I played Ange Jabeur, and I lost the first set. I won the second set, and the third set there were no breaks. But I had break points in every game of hers, and I held my serve fairly easily. So I would win my service games fifteen thirty. And on her serves, I would always have at least one break point. And every break point, I had maybe five or six in that set. She served a serve in a way that I couldn't return it. Either I would just like put it, push it back just behind the net and she had an easy put away or I couldn't even return it or she hit an ace. And I had, I think, six break points. And I'm 99% certain that 10 years ago, if I have six break points in the third set, I would have a read on at least three of these serves, right? And I had none. And that was the first time where I thought women's tennis has really changed. And I considered Ons to be a top 10 player. At that time, she was 13 or 14, but she was already playing like a top 10, play, top 10 player. It was just due to the pandemic points. It was much harder to break into that, that um, gear for her. But uh, tennis-wise, she was already there. And I think I agree in that regard. I agree with uh, with Chuck Adams that has changed tremendously in the women's game. I don't think it was like that ten years ago. I don't think so. But now it is definitely. You've you've had like 
remarkably like unfortunate injuries throughout your career. Do you chalk it up to bad luck? Do you chalk it up to not knowing things that you know now? What what do you chalk up the uh, uh did you break your back? Did you have a, a yeah, yeah, I mean so, no, I don't see it as bad luck, actually, at all. I see one thing as bad luck, which was uh, when I was 19, I tore my ACL at the Australian Open. That was something that was kind of out of nowhere, and that is apparently also a little bit genetic, because I had a few ACL tears in my family as well. So this is maybe just bad luck, happens, whatever, um, but the stress fracture in my back that turned out to be a, a broken back in the end was like strictly my fault because <laughs> I had fault. played. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if strictly my fault, but it was definitely not bad luck. I had felt back pain for, I think, at least five months until I actually went to the doctor. And I was just, which also makes me really strong as a player. I was just a relent and I still am. That's like one thing that I always had and always will have. I'm just a relentless competitor. So once I stepped out on court, no matter if I had pain or if something was going on, I would just give it my all every single second and every point. And I practice the same way because I do believe the way you practice, you also compete. So um, and I was climbing in the rankings. I was 20, then I was 15, then I was 11. And all of a sudden I was number nine in the world. And I finished the season 2011 as number nine in the world. And as I told you, I knew I was only 200 points behind uh, number two. So, so I was like, I have to do well at the Australian Open. I have to win at least three, four rounds. I want to put myself in this position. So I worked so hard in the off season. And my back was not great, but I kept pushing, pushing, because my goal was just so big in front of my eyes and so close. I felt like I just have to grab it. I just have to reach my hand out and it's there. And so I think I made it much, much worse than it should have been. In the end, I was out, I think, more than six months, which could have been a matter of six to eight weeks, you know. So this I definitely is not bad luck. It's just strict stupidness from Andrea. <laughs> Just and, and I imagine you didn't tell anybody, and you just sort of managed the injury. Well, I remember this one instance. I was um, practicing with Angie Kerber actually, and we were doing this drill where I'm on the net and she's at the baseline. And I stepped weirdly on my right leg, and it was it uh, exactly pinched the nerve in my back that oh. was injured, and I fell down. But it went away right away. I just had pinched it, and then it like let go. But I fell down. I was like, oh my back. And Angie came over and she's like, don't you want to go to the doctor? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. I just have it sometimes. And now looking back at it, I remember how dumb that sounds. And I just said like, oh, I just have that sometimes that I make a weird step and I fall down and can't move for three minutes. But then it's fine again. Now I see all the signs. But back then, and Angie, I remember her looking, looking at me quizzically, kind of like, are you sure this is a good thing to have? And... um and I was just so ambitious. I mean, that, that's what also made me really great as a tennis player and what still makes me good as a tennis player. But um, but it was not good for my health and my body. And the problem is when you have a big injury at very early in your career, you start compensating and then one injury comes after the other. And it's not bad luck anymore. It's just your body is disaligned and then everything just starts. That's why I think, you know, you when you think, oh, why is this player so... 
um, why does he have so much bad luck with injuries? I think if you have one big injury that disaligns your the balance in your body, the other injuries are just kind of the compensation of the first injury you had. So if I could turn back times, I would definitely uh, have cured my back earlier. And maybe the other injuries that came afterwards wouldn't have been there that much or not as badly, you know. What's it like to crack the top 10? I mean, what is that? What is that moment? How do you remember that moment? Was it a match? And then the week, then like the next week it comes out? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's kind of the way it works in tennis is a little bit um, uh, unexciting because I played in Karlsbad. I remember I played semifinals. I lost to Radvanska. Uh, Karlsbad was back then the tournament that is now in San Jose, a 500 TA event, and I played semifinals, and I lost a really great match, actually, against Agnieszka Radvanska. And um, so the moment when you actually turn into the top 10 is kind of a letdown, because in this moment, I knew that I was probably going to be, but you never know, right? Because everyone is playing at the same time. And so on Monday morning, you wake up, it's Monday, nobody likes Mondays, you're tired, you had a day off, you have to go to practice, you turn on your phone and you go on the rankings and you're 10. But it's like, you know, it would have been more fun if it's like with the match, you managed to get entry into the top 10. And um, but that's, that's not the case. And now I see they celebrate everyone that like, cracks the top 10 to get a cake and a, a flowers i didn't get shit cracked <laughs> when i cracked the top 10 people just like spat in their hand and gave me a, a wet handshake and that was it <laughs> how do you explain angie kerber's success you've obviously had a front row seat for all of it i watch her play and sometimes i i'm always amazed that she wins matches against players that seem more athletic and hit harder. But that's obviously not the whole story. No. So I'm going to tell you, if you ever play baseline points with her, just like up until 10, you will know that she is the best player that's ever walked the earth from the baseline. The way she redirects balls, the way she opens the court and just and what makes her so good is it's pure instinct. When you ask Angie for a game plan against a player, if you go up to her and you're like, hey, I'm playing Sinyakova. You played her last week. Like, what do you think? She will look at you and be like, I think her forehand is worse or better. I just, maybe you should play hot. She just cannot help you at all. I never ask Angie for any game plans. And then you see her play a match and she does exactly the things that hurt the opponent always and it's pure instinct she has the best instinct for the tennis game i've ever seen in anybody that i've ever played with there is no effort in it so she never gets tired if you go for a run with angie she will like get tired after 25 minutes and tank because she hates running but on the court she never gets tired because she moves like a cat she's so efficient in her movement the only other player i can remember who moves similarly was a Jelena Jankovic, uh, JJ, she also moved like a cat, like very efficiently, very smoothly. And that's mm -hmm. how Angie moves. So she never, she never gets tired. She's also uh, late way into her 30s. She's 34 as well. She gets more tired than she used to, but st still, she's so efficient. And 
lefty, the way she opens up angles, and she plays with your pace. So you do all the work and you're thinking, oh, what's happening? I'm the better player, but then you end up losing two and three and just get frustrated with everything. Losing <laughs> but two. I just wish, I sometimes wish tennis fans could just feel how it feels to play somebody like Angie, who looks kind of unassuming from the outside. And people are like, how did she win three slams? And I'm here and I'm thinking like, how did she not win more slams? And if yeah. she had a better serve, I'm certain she would have won eight, nine, or ten slams. Because when she's in that mode from the baseline, she's almost unbeatable. Yeah, I remember I spoke to Wim Fissette about it. And I was like, well, she can't hit the ball very hard. And he's like, you're wrong. She can redirect and she can crack her backhand. And then I kind of started watching more. And I was like, oh. But, you know, it's true. You don't really feel the what what a player feels even from the stands the way a the way a ball feels from a pro player you don't feel it until you're on the other side of the court it's a yeah. different thing well it's, especially with these type of players who are counter punchers you know Angie is like a classic counter puncher because that's really hard to explain to tennis fans why it's so hard to play against these people because they just Always, it's like playing chess against somebody who knows his next two moves already. And you're like still struggling with your first move. You're like, oh, should I go there? Should I move the tower? Should I do something with the queen? Or And he's already two steps ahead of you. And that's how it feels playing against Angie, where you're like, and that's why clay is not necessarily her best surface, even though she can play well there too. But on clay, the ball stands a little bit more up and you have to generate more pace by your own. And so that's that's harder for her because she plays with everything you give her. She has the better answer. But if you give her nothing, then she has to come up with things. And that's how clay the clay game works a little bit. So that's that's where she struggles most. But she's still incredible. By the way, Angie Kerber beats Serena Williams and Wimbledon. I mean, that's yeah, that's, exactly. that's pretty that incredible. A lot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's an incredible thing. What's it like to be on the opposite side of the court versus Naomi Osaka? Well, Naomi is just, it's devastating because you can't do anything by yourself in a sense. That's how it feels. Like, for example, uh, I had this example with Serena one time because people like to compare them and I think Serena is a little bit underestimated in her all-court game. People think she's all power because she has this great serve. But really, when you play Serena, um, okay, if she serves well, you don't have many looks on it. But if you get into a rally with Serena, and that's what really breaks you down in the end, you have the feeling you can sit with her. You can hang with her. You're there. But she just outplays you in the end. She plays angles that people don't know. She plays really great angles. She can play slice. She can play high spin with her forehand. So uh, she really has a lot of uh, repertoire that she can use to play you. Whereas with Naomi, it's pure power. You have no say in anything. And then your goal is to somehow get her shaky and somehow break her rhythm. But that's really hard if there are like 100 20 mile serves coming at you. And uh, the only thing that I always hope when I play Naomi is that she doesn't make a lot of first serves. And then when you have a second serve and you can attack it a little bit, then you're there and you can at least play. But if she sees the ball well and serves well, and I've played her in uh, Melbourne this year and the roof was closed. So she had like 70% first serves. 
it's almost impossible to break her then because she is just so much power coming at you. And to the point of Serena and, and both of those players, isn't it true that the best players stop missing at some point? They either yeah. they they kind of have a an they have a just a special quality where they stop missing. Serena stops missing when she yeah. when Serena Williams is playing her best tennis. She stops missing. Yeah. So the um, the thing is when I mean I have the feeling sometimes too when I get late into tournaments and you sometimes almost feel like you're going like you're in the quarters and you're already feeling like oh I'm probably going to win this tournament you just get this feeling that you're just not going to miss it you just know what you're doing you're seeing the ball so big you see everything in advance and it's just this flow but not the flow in the moment but just the flow of the tournament where everything is going your way. And I think that's how it feels like for Serena and Naomi, except that they are then the best in the world. So they really know they are not going, you know, if I like play my absolute best and I meet a Naomi, I can still lose. But Naomi, if she plays her best, she probably won't lose. And that must be a really amazing feeling. And that's what makes Grand Slam champions in the end, Grand Slam champions, is that they have this, um, this, innate imminent feeling that once they stop missing this is it they are going to win the slam and nobody can change anything about it they're gonna win the slam and there's no one can change anything about it so how do you explain the the parody in women's tennis now where it it it, it, Svantec is playing the best tennis in the world Ashley Barty just retired but you know, the women who got to the finals of the U.S. Open last year came out of obviously nowhere, or not necessarily nowhere, but they were not supposed to be there. Um, on any given on any given day, we don't know who's winning these matches. How do you explain that parody? Well, I think that um, Ash Barty and Iga Swiatek are actually counter examples because they don't play like somebody like Naomi, for example. They have much more variety in their game. They play a lot of spin on their forehands, both of them, which is uh, actually really similar, which they have in common. They have a lot of drive on their on their serves. And I think when you have this margin in your game, even if you play badly, you will still get through matches, right? And if you are um, equipped with this athletic prowess that both Ashley and Iga have, you will get through matches or somebody like uh, I'm thinking of Sakari of Maria Sakari, who just like wins matches when she's not playing her best. Right. And this is the, these are the players that have now been the most consistent one and who are in the, in the top 10. Same with Paula Badosa. She has a lot of topspin on her forehand. And here comes the, the problem with somebody like, or not, it's not a problem, but here comes the, um, the Achilles maybe with Naomi or somebody who plays so high risk tennis, if they are a little bit off, they can lose to a lot of players. And because women's tennis has grown so closely together, this is, this can happen any day now. And, um, and you know, it's, for example, if you remember when Steffi Graf was playing, she got through her first four or five rounds, 6-1-6-2, 6-1-6-0, There was no match almost at all. And this has changed. Even if um, 
even if they are playing well, the matches are not that easy anymore. They have to like battle, you know, it's like seven, five, six, four, six, three, six, four, or sometimes three sets. It costs a lot of energy. So uh, it's not as easy anymore to be consistent. And I know this is, might be controversial, but I think that if there was a best of three format in the men's tennis, you will have much more chaos than yeah. you than you have now because in women's tennis, if you have a bad start, you're down a set and a break, you're about to lose. And then good luck handling your nerves if you're the fifth seed at the Australian Open and you're losing to somebody that's 100 in the world to then regather your nerves and be like, okay, calm down. You're the better player. You can do this. It's not easy. Whereas in the men's, if you're a set and a breakdown, you're like, ah, fine. I still have two sets. I will still find my rhythm. And once I find my rhythm, I'm much better than the other person. So I do think that the best of three format, I mean, you see it, the chaos is much higher in the regular ATP tournament. Nobody would have uh, imagined Cameron Norrie winning Indian Wells last year, yeah. but you, or Fritz winning Indian Wells this year. It's just, um, there's just much more margin when you have best of three sets. A lot of things, many more things can happen. And I'm honestly, I'm here for a hot mess. I love a hot mess of a tournament, <laughs> but I know some some people would like to see the same ones win over and over again. Your best moment on tour? I think the semifinals of the French Open and uh, when I won Charleston in uh, 2014. Could you have done better? Or did you leave it all out there? I'm not trying to retire you. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just my question. Yeah. Uh, could you have done better? I think that the match, that's my only regret maybe is um, that match in Roland Garros, the semifinals. I um, was playing Simona Halep and um, we had all played at the same time. For some reason, it just so happened Simona and me played almost every day at the same time. So I hadn't watched any of her matches. I just looked at the results and she won most of her matches two and two, two and three, one and two. And she won her quarterfinals, I think, two and all against Kuznetsova. And I went into the match thinking like, oh, Simona is playing out of her ass. She's playing so well. The thing was, I was playing really well, too. In the, my quarters, I beat Irani, who was the uh, year before she was in the finals of the French Open. And I beat her one and two, I think, or two and one. So I was playing tremendously well as well. But the whole first set, I had it in my mind that Simona is playing incredible. And that's what I mean with the best of, five, uh, best of three, best of five format. When I came to, I was down 6-2. And then the second set, I was up 4-1. I lost it 7-6. Um, I think I had the set point. I lost it eight six in the tiebreak or something. Um, and if I had start, went, if I had gone into the match with a different attitude, like I'm just as good, I played just as well. Uh, maybe I could have won it. I don't know. Maybe not. But that's just the one regret that I have. How I went in mentally um, into this match. That's interesting because you're so close right you're four sets away from winning a, a major mm. so, so that sort of stays with you the hardest yeah it's like um you clearly you tried everything you did everything that you were able in this moment with the knowledge you had to do but then looking back you obviously have more knowledge and then you're like oh how did i not do it differently 
But I mean, that's just the curse of humanity that we have always, that we always have hindsight. If we were as smart in this moment, we wouldn't have done the dumb things that we always do. But still, as a tennis player, especially, you know, at that, that moment when I lost, I was like, oh, it's fine. I'm going to get it next time. But then there was never another next time. I never came to the semifinals of a Grand Slam again. This is also something you don't know. So obviously, looking back at it now, I'm thinking like, why didn't I go into this match a little bit differently? But I remember going out of the match. I was very disappointed. But the next day, I was like, okay, my tennis is coming together. I played the semifinals. I had chances in the second set. I'm going to get there again. But then I never did, you know? So it's just you, you hindsight. Basically, curse of humanity and hindsight. <laughs> yeah, and next week, there's a tournament. You'll be there. That's like, right? yeah. it's like, it's like you're back on that yeah. wheel. Yeah, it's just the the way tennis works a little bit, you know. There is every week there is another tournament that you can go to. So, um, yeah. And change your life kind of, right? Like we see it all yeah. the time. Yes. I mean, look at Emma Raducanu. She's playing a, a fairly okay season for who she was just a year ago. I mean, she's so young. She has so much potential. But for some reason at this tournament, everything came together and now her whole life has changed and people are expecting so much of her. And I think she will get there. I really love the way she plays, but she's 18. She needs a little bit of time. You know, it's just what you say in tennis. One week, one great week where everything comes together can change your whole life and then you have to deal with it. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I just say it and you, and you say what comes in your mind. Your current racket? Wilson. Which one? Which one? 6-1, uh, Team 6-1. How do you string your racket? 25-25, and I have Gut on the mains and Luxalon on the crosses. Oh, really? You yeah. still play with the Lux and the Gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and what size is your grip? Uh, a two. Four and a half. What do you mean, four and a half? Like the size, the size of the grip. It's four. I have a size two with one grip, like one over grip on top. Size okay. The most cavalier thing you ever did with prize money, just straight out of the office. The mo- oh, that's a good question. The most cavalier. Well, I know the first thing I bought with my first prize money. I um, I because in Germany the driver's license is really expensive and it's. 1500 euros so i know that's the first time i ever had prize money i spent it on my driver's license but the most cavalier thing i don't know i think i just go to dinners and invite all my friends in expensive restaurants your favorite tournament charleston why uh it's just the atmosphere is so familiar that everyone is so nice i really love Charleston, the the city, the food is great. It's just a really lovely place to be. Your favorite city? Uh, my favorite city is New York City. Um, I love it there. I live half of my time there, and it's a city I always wanted to be in and always wanted to live in. Jan Pekovic loves New York City. Uh, your favorite player growing up? My favorite player growing up was Serena Williams, obviously. <laughs> I saw her um, in the Puma outfit at the French Open. There was the Cameroon Puma outfit, and it blew my mind. I had no idea tennis players would wear things like this, and I was like, oh, my God, I want to be like her. 
and and not Steffi. I'm a little bit too young for Steffi. So yeah. Steffi played. I like the Hingis match. I just noticed on the periphery. I was still too young. Then later, I became a huge fan when I got to know her and watched old matches of her. But I was a little bit too young for Steffi. Do you know her? I do. Yes, we. She lives in Las Vegas, and uh, I used to go there to train sometimes. And she she would come by and watch or give tips and i also got to play with her once which was amazing you're an adidas uh, do you say adidas or you say adidas adidas <laughs> you say adidas you work with gill and were part of uh, have been part of that sort of top secret pro player program that the agassi graf gill reyes have there yes correct yeah that was they don't have that anymore unfortunately but uh, they used to have it and i would go there always before the U.S. tournaments and have two, three weeks of, of practice there and training camps. And, uh, and Steffi came by many times and, and gave, tip, gave me tips and played with me a bunch of times, which was um, uh, incredible. Current book you're reading? I'm reading the Hemingway biography right now. Favorite book? Uh, a Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> Why? Uh, I just, I, well, Hemingway is my favorite author in general. And that's just, I think my favorite book of his. Um, and it's just, I love Paris. I love this whole artist community that they have. And I also love, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and there is a lot of anecdotes about him as well. So it's just this whole community is something that I really, really like to read about. Angela Merkel. <laughs> our former chancellor i used to really like her but you know <laughs> olaf schultz that's, just, that's our current chancellor and we'll see what he does with germany uh agents uh necessary or necessary evil i mean i never had one so i'm obviously going to go with necessary evil but um but i i guess they are helpful i guess they are helpful but the thing is what i've noticed because i've been at the top echelon of the game and at the lowest bottom if you do well the companies and the contracts and the brands will come around along and you don't have to do anything they will just uh line up and you just have to pick and then when you're down even the best agent won't do anything for you unless you're I don't know, Pamela Anderson or for somebody who's very attractive. <laughs> Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the queen of the court. I think we touched on it earlier, but if you were the queen of tennis and you could make a change or changes in the sport with no aggravation, right? Just a swing of the racket. Um, what would they be? So in my ideal world, uh, and obviously if I'm, it means we live in a monarchy so this is kind of a fantasy so it's not real life i would first the first thing i would do i would put all of tennis under one roof one organization who's doing everything i would break down the tour to lesser events but longer events so the players don't have to travel so much i think the most uh, attrition to the body it comes from traveling because we have to travel almost every week to another city sit in, in airplanes or in cars um so i would make every all events 10 to 10 days to two weeks a la Indian Wells or Miami a little bit have much lesser uh many much fewer events and have 
uh, higher price money in these events and bigger draws so a lot of players can play and can have the chance to to achieve things. It would be all best of three. And from quarterfinals on, it would be advantage sets. So no tie breaks at six all, but from quarterfinals on. That would be my, my ideal world of tennis. And I would also make it in a way that the time zones uh, fit, you know. So if we go from Australia, that the next is the Middle East, then it's Europe, then it's America, and then coming back. But I would uh, stop the whole flying from west to east back to west to go back to the east and then you know this i would i would have it like streamlined in one flow so you wouldn't have to change all the time zones that's like my ideal fantasy tennis world <laughs> streamlined in one flow listen i this was an interview i've been you know wanting to do for some time and i'm uh, grateful that we were able to do this so we see you in madrid is that the uh is that the plan that's the goal, yes. If my um, leg holds up in the next two weeks, I'm going to go to Madrid. And you'll be, you're direct into Roland Garros, you're direct into Wimbledon, everything is on point? Yes, correct. Well, listen, as I said, this was a terrific uh, opportunity to, to chat and uh, good luck. We'll see you when we see you. We'll see you down the road. Yes, thank you, Craig. Thank you for this conversation. Andrea Petkovich, you are released. Thank you. Bye. Huge thank you to Andrea Petkovich and thank you to Caitlin Thompson and Jesse Kotansky for the assistance. As always, thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.